This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 22nd, 2019. In this week's episode, news about Facebook's handling of passwords, how to trick facial recognition systems, info on email scams, and managing spam. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. So, Facebook again. Oh, here we go, Facebook. Another week, another Facebook problem. Why is it that, like, every week, or at least every other week, we've got some story about Facebook and all the terrible things that they're doing and violating your privacy, and there's breaches and this and that all the time. All the time. Yeah, it's surprising, but it gives us lots of things to talk about. This week's story is, and it just broke today, we're recording on Thursday, that Facebook stored hundreds of millions of user passwords in plain text for years. Plain text means it's not encrypted. It means that when your password is 123456, it's stored in a file where it says 123456. And apparently employees of the company, as many as 20,000 employees, were able to access this. So they would get your username and password, which I'm thinking two things. One, they could log into your Facebook account as you, now, it's possible that Facebook has a system like that to to troubleshoot problems, right? To, to log in as someone else, but not actually be logged in. Um, but the other thing is that if you use that password in other locations, those Facebook employees would be able to potentially access other accounts of yours. So we will go back to our usual tip that we give very often. Don't use the same password on every website. Right, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's kind of... Uh... It, it, it's pretty shocking because a company as big as Facebook, t- 2012 is when uh, Brian Krebs' report says that this goes back to, it's, uh, to, in some cases going back to 2012. 2012 was not that long ago. I mean, yeah, that's seven years ago. So that might sound like a long time ago, but it's really not. I mean, like, you know, Fire Sheep was already a thing. So that that means that most websites, because of, a known vulnerability that was being exploited by people in the wild using a publicly available tool called FireShape. Because of that, most websites, including Facebook, had already started using HTTPS across their entire site, no longer just the login page like most websites used to do. So 2012, I'm thinking like, you know, this is this is recent enough that I don't think there's any reason, any excuse for Facebook to have been storing plain text passwords that recently. Well, Facebook has responded and they found this as part of a routine security review. It caught their attention because their login systems were designed to mask passwords using techniques that make them unreadable. And these are things like hashing and salting passwords and Check them on Wikipedia if you're really interested. It's just a way of hiding what they are. They're saying that, of course, they do that now, and they they keep an eye on data breach announcements from other organizations and check if stolen email and password combinations match the same credentials being used on Facebook, which I find kind of surprising. The problem remains that this is a huge breach, hundreds of millions of users. Now, um, what Brian Krebs says in his article about this is that Facebook is going to notify 
hundreds of millions of Facebook Lite users. Facebook Lite being a version of Facebook for low-speed connections and low-spec phones. Now, I'd never heard of that before. I'm thinking this is used in developing markets. Tens of millions of other Facebook users and tens of thousands of Instagram users. Yeah, I wonder, um, I don't know much about Facebook Lite, but that does sound like something that maybe people used to use on, the, on uh, you know, Palm OS phones or Blackberries or something like that. <laughs> okay, we're talking about 2012. I don't think we had Palm OS anymore. BlackBerry was may still, I think BlackBerry's still around, actually. I think there were still some people using those phones back then. So Facebook Lite apparently is available in the United States, um, but it uses very little RAM and CPU, takes up very little space, about one and a half megabytes. You can get it from the Google Play Store if you want to try it on Android. In any case, it'll save... It'll save you space on your phone. It'll save you data in some ways. Anyway, as I said earlier, our regular reminder, please don't use the same password on multiple websites because if someone gets one of them, then they could try it on the others and particularly protect your email password because that's the most important. So in other news this week, we spotted an article on Wired about facial recognition technology. Now, this is interesting. And we mentioned this a couple months ago about how Taylor Swift was using this at concerts to search for known stalkers. I think people would go to sign in on some sort of a kiosk and it would take a picture of their face, which is, you know, it's not kind of hard to do that way when the people are right in front of it. Facial recognition technology is becoming extremely advanced. It's still not up to those movies where they zoom in and, you know, from, from a satellite spot someone's face in a crowd. But it's getting to the point where a number of countries are experimenting with this for crowd control and locating people. And, and I know in China this has been used a lot lately. Um, so Wired has an article about how to hack your face to dodge the rise of facial recognition tech. Now, Josh, you don't have to worry. You're always wearing a mask. And I know you change your mask every week to a, another pseudo-random mask uh, format, so you can't be recognized. That's right. I actually 3D print different masks every single day. So when I go out in public, yes. I'm always wearing a different mask. With random features, random nose and eyes and lips and ears. <laughs> if you look through this Wired article, link in the show notes, there are some pretty extreme things that you can do to protect yourself. And in some ways... Like there's one which is like a tinfoil suit that you almost zip over your face. I think you'd attract more attention doing that than just walking around normally. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. Um, but I mean, there there are some interesting concepts in this piece, though. So if if you're really that concerned about, you know, being identified in public, well, you can look through this piece and and probably get a few tips on on things that you can do. I think for the average person, though, this is not really something you need to worry about, but, uh, you know, for the ultra privacy conscious, um, it's, you know, it's, it's worth browsing. And even, even if you think this is crazy that anybody would be that concerned about it, at least read it because it might, uh, you might find it entertaining if nothing else. Yeah. We are at the early stages of this. And in the article, they point out that the, there was a system trialed by police during the UEFA champions league final week in Wales in 2017, and 92% of the matches turned out to be wrong. Ouch. So only 8% were right, and that can be really problematic. If anything, because if you're looking for a specific person and you're getting all these false positives, if you're a police department, you're going to be spending a lot of resources to try and find who the real people are. Another interesting point about these facial recognition systems, a lot of times, because they're using artificial intelligence... Um, a lot of times they're trained using mostly Caucasian people. 
And so that means that if you are not a Caucasian person, there's a much higher probability that it's going to make a mistake when it's uh, identifying you individually. Um, so, uh, that's just another thing to, to be aware of too. It's not necessarily so much that they're racially profiling you, but, um, you know, more just a, a result of not well training their algorithm. Well, unless you're in China where this is really advanced. And another interesting tidbit in this article is some researchers, uh, from a Chinese university used an array of tiny infrared LEDs wired to the inside of a baseball cap, and it projected dots of light onto the wearer's face. And the human eye wouldn't see them because they were infrared, but it would confuse the computer and make the face unidentifiable. Wow, that's really interesting because that's a similar technology to what Face ID uses, where you've got these invisible dots being projected onto your face in order to identify that you are the person trying to log in, who's supposed to be allowed to log into your phone. Right. And Face ID does this as a a sort of a depth mapping. So the dots, I guess they can read the time it takes for the light to come back from the dot. And this is how they can tell, for instance, that your cheeks are further away from the tip of your nose and make a 3D image of your face. You know, I kind of like the idea of uh, applying that research to maybe modify the way your face appears to Face ID. So maybe if, if you have certain facial features and you add some dots in the right places. Maybe you could pretend to be somebody else and log into their phone someday. Or you can only log into your own phone when you're wearing the hat. Aha. Yeah, that's a clever hack too. So that's like a that's like a, an extra factor of authentication that your actual face doesn't work, but it's only the altered version with the hat's LEDs that works. Ah, yeah, I like that. So it's something you are and something you have. Something that you have. There you go. We like to say that, don't we? <laughs> Okay, so uh, we have an article on the Intercomac Security blog. Um, some people have been getting spam purporting to come from the CIA. <gasps> and they say that you've been looking at porn. And here's an example, um, a link in the show notes to the Intercomac Security blog, case number 69723148. Distribution and storage of pornographic electronic materials involving underage children. Boom, 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 boom. And it goes on and it gives all your information and you're suspected of pedophilia in 27 countries. The first arrests are scheduled for April 8, 2019. And this person, of course, is contacting you because I know you're a wealthy person who may be concerned about reputation. So if you transfer exactly $10,000, that's about 2.5 Bitcoin, I'll get rid of all the information. I, I would definitely believe it if I got one of these emails. I would believe that I'm in serious trouble and I would hightail it out of the country to, I don't know, someplace far away. What about you, Josh? <laughs> No, you wouldn't, Kirk. Come on, you know better than this. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> so I, I think w- there's a lot of really interesting things about this. Um, I, I think I think the first thing that we should point out is that a lot of times you can tell that this is not really from who it claims to be based on the from address or the reply to address. Sometimes there's a different address, like if you hit the reply button... Um, it might actually show a different address. So someone could be spoofing the from address, but the reply to address um, will give away who it's really going to and probably who it's really from. Yeah, spoofing means that what displays in your email client is not the actual address. Yeah, and in this case, the the person used um, the email address pastyfaust at gov3.cia-govn.cf. 
if you were actually getting an email from the CIA, from somebody using a CIA email address, it would probably be at CIA.gov or something.cia.gov. Yes, and not from a domain in the Central African Republic, which is what .cf is for. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of a giveaway if you know what to look for. But a lot of people don't. That's really true. And and if you don't know what to look for, though, there's still some things that should make you kind of suspicious about this email. For example, if if you're looking closely at it, there's kind of some Britishisms and the their style of English. Um, and you wouldn't expect that from somebody who works for the CIA necessarily. There's, uh, there's a lot of things about this. I mean, e- even if they did work for the CIA and even if they were trying to give you an out, you know, and expunge your data from this database, as long as you pay, you know, this, uh, this amount in Bitcoin, even if that were true, why would they send that from a CA email address? Because, duh, the employer is going to see their emails and know that they're, you know, extorting people. So right. that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. If, if you try to think it through logically, you can see some fallacies here. But this is exactly what this type of scam is trying to exploit. This is a brain hack. They're trying to, uh, to get you to, f- to be so afraid that you're not thinking logically anymore. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to like a $10,000 ransom, um, that, that might be a little bit too high, I think, for most people. I think by the time that they uh, try to figure out how can I get $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, they've probably already started to think about this a little more carefully and realize, you know, this probably isn't really legitimate anyway. Yeah, because not everyone knows how to pay in Bitcoin. Um, you can certainly find out, but it's not that common. Well, so this isn't that different from the um, the spam that we were getting recently where, where someone would claim to know one of your passwords with your email account, etc. I don't remember how much they were asking, but I seem to remember it was a much smaller amount of money. Right. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of about $3,000 usually. So that's more reasonable. I think I'll go for that one instead. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about spam because there's two things in this alleged CIA uh, email. It's both spam and a scam, and in many cases, spam is a scam, but in many cases, spam is spam, and we're going to talk about some of the ways you can manage your spam. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. 
Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, before the break, I said we'd come back and talk about spam. Who doesn't get spam? You get spam, don't you? Yeah, I do. I, I don't look at it very often, but I, I do get a, a fair amount of spam, I would say. Yeah, and I find that surprising that you don't look at it often. You told me that before the show. Um, I always check my junk mail. Uh, I use the Apple Mail app, and I'm looking at it now in the sidebar, you know, inbox, and VIP is flagged, and junk is there, and if something's there, I check it, because I do get spam that is false positive. So a false positive is when it's considered to be spam when it's not. Sometimes it's from people who contact me because they have my email address in one of the books that I've written. And, you know, if you want to get in touch, here's my email address. So they'll contact me out of the blue. In recent times, I've gotten a lot of newsletters that I've subscribed to, for instance, a chain of booksellers here in the UK, whose messages always come through as spam. And these are messages going through MailChimp. MailChimp is a service that people use to send out large quantities of legitimate emails. And apparently they must have misconfigured something because MailChimp should have information in their email saying we're not spam. Some of them just keep coming through. So I always check my spam and most of it is actually spam. Today I got one of these things that said uh, someone has sent me an encrypted message and it's the subject line is new invoice. And I'm supposed to click the link and go to the encrypted message because it's an invoice. And these have been pretty common lately. Invoice, you generally have a button to click, a colored button, like an oval green or red button. And, well, these are spam and scam. So spam has been around since, I guess, the very beginning of the internet. And I remember back in the day when we didn't have spam filters, when there were no spam filters on ISPs and mail servers, and there were starting to be spam filters that you could buy, that you could install on your computer as a sort of a, a plug-in to, to mail or whatever app. Um, now spam filters are everywhere, and spammers get more and more sophisticated to try and get through them, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's a cat and mouse game. So as soon as the spam filters get better, then the spammer has to get better at working around the spam filter. Um, we see this in a number of industries, uh, and, and it's no exception with the spam industry. And yes, it really is an industry. People make a ton of money off of spam, unfortunately, yep. because there are just enough people who click on the links and spam messages and, you know, pay whatever it is by, buy the products that are advertised, uh, via unsolicited messages and so forth. So, yeah, remember spam comes in different flavors. One is the sort of scam that we just talked about the CIA or the encrypted message, which is probably something that's going to try and get me to log into a website. Others are sort of male physical enhancement medications that you could buy by prescription, but don't want to ask your doctor for. And then others are all sorts of things. And I get these spams from China we are Chinese uh, machine tool company. We make all the gears. And th it's like, why are people sending out spam to try and sell machine tooled gears from China? Yeah, there's some really bizarre stuff, which is one of the reasons why <laughs> I don't look at my spam folder all that often. I think it's just depressing sometimes to see some of the stuff in there. But you do make a good point. It is a good idea because of false positives. It's a good idea to check every once in a while. I think um, if you have Gmail, I want to say their policy is like every 30 days or so. Um, they'll, they'll clear out anything that's older than that. So, um, at, yeah. at least on occasion, maybe once a week or once a month, uh, you know, check, check your spam folder because sometimes there are legitimate things that go in there that you 
may not want to go away. Well, if you're if you're in a business and you're expecting emails from clients, you may get clients who send email that gets filtered in spam. And in some cases, this is just because of the way that they've configured their domain, that they don't have the appropriate thing to say that this domain is not sending spam. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and this is part of that whole cat and mouse game. Now there's there's such a high bar that you that you have to meet in order to uh, to get past a lot of these spam filters. Um, if your mail server isn't set up just right, then it's going to have a really hard time getting to people's inboxes. You know that that is something that especially small businesses really have to be concerned with. And uh, you know if you're running a small business and you don't seem to be getting uh, a lot of replies to the emails that you're sending out, that may be why. There's probably some configuration that you need to to make in order to um, to show up as a more legitimate email. So we got an email from a listener, John H. in England, who was talking about some fake emails that he's been getting. Um, several seem to be from people he knows. And he's saying the first part of the sender's address was familiar, but the part after the at is different. Now, sometimes the, the address can be spoofed, but there are other ways that people can do this, aren't there? Yeah. And, and as I was thinking about how to respond to John, I thought, you know, there's actually probably a lot of ways that somebody could do something like this. And, and, and John said, my, my concern is, well, what, how are they getting these names? Does that mean that somebody's accessed my contacts list? Here's, here's a, a number of different ways that somebody could get the names of people that you know and use them in sending you spam. Um, so first of all, as you mentioned, Kirk, it's not just because you see a name of somebody you know does not necessarily mean that somebody has hacked into your account or has stolen your contacts. It could be very well that somebody got those names from somebody else and then connected them to you. One of the biggest ways I, I suspect that this kind of information leaks is you or friend, you know, might have granted access to uh, to an app to uh, to your contacts. So maybe when you signed up for Facebook years ago or LinkedIn or you know any number of others, especially social networks tend to do this a lot. They'll say, hey, um, we want access to your contacts on your iPhone and we want to know who all your friends are because then we can help you connect to them. And so you might think, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds innocuous enough. What you don't realize is that they store that data indefinitely. They never get rid of it. And so now they've got all this information about your contacts. Everything that was in your contacts has been uploaded to them (laughs) and they're keeping it forever. And so now they, they know the names of a ton of people that you know. And whatever happens if somebody buys that company or... Whatever happens if somebody, you know, breaches the servers at that company? Now, someone else who you never intended to have this information has all of your contact information tied to you. Okay, Apple does this and they don't even ask. So if you go into, if you have an Apple Music subscription and you go into iTunes and you click your avatar on the top right of the window, you'll see a thing about friends. And if you scroll down and click find more friends, you will see your contacts who are sharing music. And this is from my iCloud contacts. They're showing who are sharing music. In other words, who've set up profiles on Apple Music to share their music. And then it lists other contacts of mine, and I can click a button to invite them. Presumably, this means that these other contacts also have Apple Music, but aren't sharing their music. 
So even Apple doing this without, maybe they told me once that they were going to do this, but I don't remember it. Yeah. And of course, Apple is the, you know, we love privacy. We're, we're the friends of privacy company. And then uh, you see things like this and you kind of scratch your head and go, really? How much do they care about my privacy? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, this is just sort of like, the, this. to be honest, this is really standard stuff. This is something that just about every big company does in some way or other. So it's not like Apple is really doing something that's way different from anybody else and really overstepping the bounds. Maybe in your opinion, you know, it might be overstepping the bounds, but compared to other companies, it's not really that much worse. Yeah. Um, so that's not to say that that's a good thing, uh, but it is something to be aware of. Even Apple, a company that claims to be all about privacy, does use your contact information and they do store it. Um, as you mentioned, this is coming from your iCloud contacts. Exactly, because I've chosen to store my contacts in iCloud and it's possible if I didn't that they wouldn't be making this suggestion. And it could be the same thing easily with uh, with Google services. If you're using Gmail, well, guess what? You have all your contacts in the Google Cloud, so <laughs> you can you can definitely see that the same thing goes on other places too. Okay, so there's a lot of reasons why we can get spam, um, but what do we do about spam? I mean, in most cases, as I said earlier, back in the back in the day, there were no spam filters, and then when they started, they were relatively inefficient. They're really quite good now. My personal domain is hosted on Google, and I don't get a lot of spam. I'm going to figure I get 10 or 20 spam messages a day, which is nothing compared to years ago when I'd get 100. Uh, I think what Google does is they just delete the most egregious spam messages off the bat, right? Google is probably one of the best companies at, at handling spam. And I think one of the reasons for that is there are so many people that have Gmail accounts who are clicking, you know, this message is spam when they see something in their inbox that they know is not supposed to be there. They're behind the scenes, they're automatically training their spam filters. And that's why, uh, in fact, that's actually one of the reasons why sometimes you have a lot of false positives in your spam folder too, because there are enough people who are going in and clicking, oh, this is spam, not thinking that, oh, I've signed up for this account, you know, or that service. And they don't remember signing up for something. Right. Or, or they, they feel like I don't want to see this as often. And they, so they think I need to click, this is spam, um, which is not exactly the intent of the button, but that's how a lot of people treat it. And so Google's algorithms then learn based on that. Um, but I think there's enough people who are marking things as spam that uh, Google's algorithm is actually pretty well trained when it comes to actual spam and putting it in the spam folder automatically. And by the way, so there, there I mentioned there are several ways that somebody could get a hold of your contacts. Sharing it through an app or a service like LinkedIn, um, you know, is definitely one of those ways. Uh, probably the most common, I would suspect. Um, there are a variety of other ways. One that I've seen before personally is that you or a friend may have accepted a friend request on Facebook or some other social network from a fake profile unknowingly. Uh, and sometimes threat actors will actually create profiles that mimic a real person's profile as a method to trick you into adding them so you get to, so they get to see your friends and now they can use that same attack against those friends and spread out further and just collect all kinds of data from you. Another possibility is you or a friend may have had malware on a device that stole data, 
including contacts. That's a possibility. Um, probably not as likely as the first couple. These are kind of in decreasing probability, but still possible. Well, if your friends are Windows users, then I would think it is kind of possible. It's it's probably a little bit more likely, but it's certainly possible for Mac malware to scrape your contact information and send it off to yeah. the server as well. Yeah. It's not something that we see very often, but it definitely can happen. Your friend may have experienced a cyber criminal breaching one of your email accounts at some point. Um, and this is really what, uh, what John was concerned about. Did someone actually hack into my email? And, you know, it's possible that somebody got into your email or a friend's email and that's how they associated you with your friends. But, you know, it's, it's less likely than these other things. And then finally, you or a friend may have experienced someone with access to one of your devices using an unsophisticated attack and manually stealing your contacts. In other words, that that's Tom Cruise stuff. <laughs> somebody walks up to one of your devices, opens your contacts and then goes, oh, this looks interesting. And they plug in a flash drive and copy that. And of course, they get away moments before you come back in the door. Of course, just because that's how Tom Cruise operates. So, yeah. Um, one thing to point out about spam is sometimes you'll get um, what looks to be a newsletter and there's an unsubscribe link in the spam. Don't ever click the unsubscribe link because what that does is it tells the spammer that your address is valid. Um, and there's another very important thing to consider uh, about this. Now, you may want to do this anyway on a mobile device to cut down data usage. But uh, on my iPhone uh, in settings mail, I have untoggled load remote images. So when I get emails... Uh, the images do not uh, load, and I have to uh, tap a little link at the bottom to load the images in the email. And what this means, uh, sometimes spammers will be able to use the images linked to the email address, and just the image loading will be able to tell them that the email is valid. If you're using the Mail app on the Mac, this option works a little bit differently. There is a load remote content in messages option in preferences viewing. However, if you have this turned on, it does not apply to messages in your junk folder. I leave this on so the message in my inbox get all the remote content, but when you get spam, you'll have to click a little button on a message to load remote content for the images to load. So it's more sophisticated on the desktop, and I'd say it's less of an annoyance on the desktop because I do often want to see the images and messages that I get to my inbox on my Mac. Right. And, and since, again, we know a lot of our, our listeners use Gmail, I'll mention that there is a similar feature in Gmail as well. So if you notice that when you open an email that images are loading by default, that can mean one of two things. Either there's embedded images in the email um, or it's loading it from a, a remote server. And if it's loading it from a remote server, that's what Kirk is talking about, where you don't want it to do that by default because uh you know a lot of times spammers will do that they can even put a you know a one pixel size image that's clear so you can't even tell that it's there you can't even see there's an image but it's used but it's used specifically to track you and to know that you got the email that your email address is valid and that it, you know it's actually going to somebody okay well that's pretty much everything you need to know about spam. Um, spam is annoying. And, and I wish, you know, Google had a setting uh, many years ago that you could uh, create a filter for a specific language. And languages are often identified by ISO character sets. So you could, for instance, create a filter that anything that's in Chinese or Russian would automatically be deleted. And they got rid of that. And it was really useful because uh, I do occasionally get spam in Chinese and Russian and other languages that I can't read. And obviously, 
if someone sends me an email in Chinese, it's clearly not going to be intended for me. Um, they don't do that anymore, and it's a shame. But that would be a useful feature to help cut down a lot of spam because much of it does come from these countries. Remember, China has the largest population in the world, so they're going to really be targeting Chinese people in spam quite often. But spam is an annoyance. We're always going to live with it, just like the junk mail we get through our doors. There's not much to do about it. Just learn to live with it. Check your spam folder. Anything that's not spam, mark that it's not spam. That's really important. So over time, the spam filter will learn and you won't get these false positives. Okay, I hope in the future, Josh, you will check your spam filter more often because I don't know how many messages I've sent you that have ended up in your spam filter because I sent from a different address than what I usually use. Well, I better go and check it right now. Okay, until next week, stay secure and stay spam free. All right, stay secure, Kirk. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>